One First, day heaven it extended its irresistible arm and held the cleaver of fate in its fist and the cut us off. Uh, radio died in the fall of 1953, I suppose, that last season. And it had to die suddenly and violently because the networks could no longer sustain it because they intended to go into the new medium television. If they had tried to hold on to radios they might have for a season or two, there would have been other moneyed interests to create the television industry, you see. But on that occasion, the radio industry had only to turn to its sponsors and said, we have something new for you to buy, something wonderful and three-dimensional now. So we're going to discard this little thing, radio, and the sponsors, very understandingly, nodded their head and bought the new product. Those actors of us who had been made our living in radio were completely discarded. There were some very bright young men in television, and there was an opprobrium to having been a radio actor. It was said that you were a ham, that you made faces when you acted, and that was true to a certain extent. You're saying something that has never been said before, to my knowledge, that the networks themselves killed the medium. Well, they had to. Yes, yeah, surely you had to destroy. It's the story of the little Jewish lady who had two chickens, and when one fell sick, she killed the the well one in order to make chicken soup for the same. <laughs> <laughs> when ABC Radio took out a broadcasting magazine ad in 1954 touting their year-over-year -year sales growth, they juxtaposed theirs against the other three networks in the same period. It painted a bleak picture for the industry. In November of 1952, total network monthly advertising billing was $14,477,000. The next year, advertising numbers were down to $13,664,000. The loss of revenue was reflected in the loss of ratings. As drastic as the ratings decline was at the decade's beginning, it was the mid-1950s that saw radio ratings die on the vine. During the 52-53 season, five shows still had ratings higher than 10, with Amos and Andy leading at 14.2. A year later, People Are Funny led all shows with a rating of 8.7. In 1955, Jack Benny would lead with a 5.7. Hans Conried remembered that time. Yes, they were engaged in an industry that had little future. That was obvious to all, because the technical facilities of television were apparent. And so they were all prepared to sell and buy and produce, so why not discard the old model as far as they were concerned? It may have been difficult on us, but it was quite understandable. Consider it now, there were many of us engaged in it. It was, it is hard to explain to persons who have never uh, utilized it as an evening's entertainment as we in our time did. But I suppose it was as avidly followed and it caused as much social conversation and certainly did, I suspect, rather less harm than the popular one that might as well be nameless now, in which I also make a living. It was a a very rich theatrical form that has not been matched, I think, in many aspects by anything that has come later. But for those people working in radio who also found their way to TV, this period was a golden age for the character actor. They were now recognized for their performances on both mediums, and with the increased profile came an increase in opportunities. It was a marvelous time. I learned that happily I was able to sustain myself as an actor. I don't know what I should have done for a living. I would have had to learn something else. What about from the listener's standpoint? Do you think that I think uh, today's young people I... have lost something? Well, I don't. I, I, that's, you know, with changing times, of course. The young people, I have four kids myself. 
And I know they have been educated or they have been entertained by the television screen. They have not read half the books at 20 that I read at 7 or 8, you know. They have not the literary background. They are in high school and college, and they are obliged to, but to read for pleasure, they don't. And uh, radio always seemed to me an extension of reading. Indeed, those of us who became radio actors must have enjoyed reading, or we would never have had the facility. When I tell you that at 16 or 17, or when I was 18 and became a professional actor doing then what I'm doing now, some 35 years later... I was a pretty slick reader, and uh, indeed it was such a facility that was sometimes superficial because you very often gave your very best performance the first reading, mm. and you never felt that it was necessary to improve it. So there was that unfortunate aspect of it. But by and large, uh, we were a pretty slick bunch. It was apparent to everyone that TV had moved in and taken over. What the radio industry would do about it was still uncertain. As February of 1954 got underway... Both new shows and old shared the spotlight. Oh, life could be a dream If I could take you up in paradise up above If you would tell me I'm the only one that you love Life could be a dream Welcome to Breaking Walls, episode 124. My name is James Scully. Tonight on Breaking Walls, we pick up our 1954 miniseries in February. We'll focus on radio programming and national news from that month. If this is your first time listening to Breaking Walls, welcome to the show. You can find the series on every podcasting platform and at thewallbreakers.com. Tonight's opening song is the crew cut Shaboom, a number one hit in 1954. Join the Breaking Walls Facebook group to keep in touch with news, snippets, photos, and other additions to the podcast at facebook.com slash groups slash the wallbreakers. You can also support these shows for as little as a dollar per month at patreon.com slash the wallbreakers. I remember Jack Webb before Dragnet. As a matter of fact, Herb Ellis was living in San Francisco at the time. He and Jack were very good friends. And when Jack was coming to Los Angeles, Herb called me and said, meet him at, I don't forget which studio, and audition for him. He's going to be doing a program called Pat Novak for Hire. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. And you remember the show? Yeah. So that's where I met Jack. I met Raymond Burr there. And... A woman that I wonder if she's still around, her first name was Yvonne, a very, very low, sexy voice. Yvonne Patey? Exactly. Is she still around? Yvonne Patey. Yeah. You remember the voice? Anyhow, that's my recollection of Jack Webb at first. When Dragnet debuted in the ratings in the fall of 1949 under the sponsorship of Liggett and Myers, it did so with an 8.5. 
That number was 64th overall. Two years later, in the midst of TV surge, Dragnet's radio rating had climbed to 8.7, now 14th overall. The TV version debuted in 1951. In 1954, its TV rating was second, only behind I Love Lucy. Part of the reason the radio version was able to stave off a ratings decline longer than most other shows was creator Jack Webb's ingenuity, as Virginia Gregg, Harry Bartell, and Peggy Weber remembered. Yeah, you called me and said we're going on television. Can you think of any script you've done you'd like to do? And I said, yeah. And I told him, and we did it, and it was because it was about an illegitimate baby. They never repeated it. Another Peggy and I worked together on, I think, what was the third episode? It was the third episode of the series. That was shot in the original series. TV series. And the impact of that series is the sharpest of anything I've ever seen. The original impression that it made coming into people's living room, all of a sudden I'd been in radio, I don't know how many years out here, and the name might have been known, but people started to say, hey, it. And it was, it was shocking the first time that it happened, walking down Hollywood Boulevard, one appearance on Dragnet. And that was the third episode. I think they released it earlier than that, though. Well, what I think really made it so remarkable, no one had taken close-ups with television shows until that time. And Jack did that entire third show in close-up. It was... It was really very innovative, which is, you know, you look back on it now, you wonder how that could have been such a surprising thing because films had been using close-ups for years. But he saw that you only had 30 minutes to get a show across. And you had and a he, small screen. So. And, of course, he also was using that teleprompter machine, which uh, I found very disconcerting and very Speaking of close-ups, he called and said, I want you to do this part. It's about a, a woman who can't have a baby. And I said, Jack, I'm seven months pregnant. And he said, that's okay, we'll shoot you from the waist up. <laughs> and I did it. In February of 1954, Dragnet's radio version was airing Tuesday evenings at 9 p.m. Eastern Time on NBC. The February 2nd episode was entitled The Big Filth. Ladies and gentlemen, the story you are about to hear is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. Dragnet is brought to you by Chesterfield, made by Liggett and Myers, first major tobacco company to bring you a complete line of quality cigarettes. You're a detective sergeant. You're assigned a juvenile detail. Four children in your city have apparently been abandoned by their mother. There's no trace of the woman's whereabouts. There's a possibility of foul play. Your job, investigate. Today, you hear these three words everywhere. Chesterfield's for me. The cigarette tested and approved by 30 years of scientific tobacco research. Chesterfield's for me. The cigarette with a proven good record with smokers. And first cigarette to have such a record. Chesterfield's for me. Chesterfield gives you proof of highest quality. Low nicotine. The taste you want. The mildness you want. 
The Chesterfield you smoke today is the best cigarette ever made. And best for you. Dragnet, the documented drama of an actual crime. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department, you will travel step by step on the side of the law through an actual case transcribed from official police files. From beginning to end, from crime to punishment, Dragnet is the story of your police force in action. It was Friday, February 8th. It was raining in Los Angeles. We were working the night watch out of juvenile detail. My partner's Frank Smith. The boss is Captain Powers. My name's Friday. I was on my way back from Juvenile Hall, and it was 7.46 p.m. when I got to 1335 Georgia Street, the office. Joe? Yeah, Irene? You talked to Captain Powers? Yeah, the way it looks, Frank's going to be tied up in court for a couple of days. going kind of hard. Gang war, isn't it? Yeah, seems like everybody in town's climbed on this one, really making a big thing out of it. Uh-huh. Fellow Skipper said I was supposed to give you a hand on anything that might come up. Then you just made it. Hmm? Woman in the next office, you better talk to her. What's it about? It'll be better if you got it straight from her. Was she a crank? I don't think so. See what you can figure. All right. Mrs. Eggers? Yes, Miss Gardner. You ready to do something about this? Yes, ma'am. I'd like you to meet Sergeant Friday. Joe, this is Mrs. Eggers. Now, how do you do? Miss Eggers? If you'd give him the story the way you told it to me. You bet I will. Sit down, young man. I'll tell you all about it. All right. Get your book out. I beg your pardon? Your book. You're going to take some notations, aren't you? Well, if you'll just tell us what this is all about. Yeah. Well, I don't want you to get the idea that I'm the nosy type. I'm not. It's just that I take an interest in the things that go on around me. Civil-minded is the way they put it in the papers. Uh-huh. Of course, there are people who say that I pay too much mind to their business, but it isn't true, not a bit of it. If you tell the sergeant what happened. Oh, yeah. Well, these people moved into the house about six months ago, the five of them. Yes, ma'am. Stevie, Pamela, Carol, Martin, and the mother, Rowena. Four kids and the mother. All right. Would you like to go on? Well, now, right off, I could spot this woman. I've seen a lot of them. How do you mean that, Ms. Eggers? You can make it crystal if it's any easier. Yes, ma'am. What did you mean? That you've seen a lot of them? Alkies, you know. Drunks. Mm-hmm. Well, she's one. I could spot it right off. Her and those four beautiful children. Yeah. Well, the first few months they lived there, I'd maybe see her a couple times a week, you know, going in the house or coming out. Just a couple times a week. I see. Last week, ten days, I hadn't seen her at all. Not even a little sight. Mm-hmm. So right off, I figured that something was wrong. That's the way it looks to me. All right, thank you, Ms. Eggers. We'll check on the house right away. Well, that's what I wanted this policewoman to do. I told her I'd go right along with you. Well, that won't be necessary. Now, listen, young man. If there's anything wrong with them kids, I want to know about it. I'm going to do my part. The whole neighborhood's talking. Is that right? Sure. Little Stevie's been to all the houses looking for something to do, asking for work. It just seems to me that there's something wrong about the whole caboodle of them. Not seeing the mother and the way the boy don't eat the lunch plate. Not seeing the other kids. There's something that don't fit over there. All right, ma'am, we'll look right into it. You just do that. We'll see what I say is true. Thank you, Mrs. Eggers. Don't go thanking me. Just trying to be civil-minded, that's all. Mm-hmm. Just seems that there isn't anybody who cares about those kids. Well, that's not true, Mrs. Eggers. What? We do. 8.14 p.m. Policewoman Irene Gardner and I left the office and drove over to the address the Eggers woman had given us. The house was a small, one-story, clabbered building located on the rear of the lot. The front yard was overgrown with weeds and there were neighborhood advertising papers lying around. When we arrived, there was a faint light on in one of the front rooms. Irene and I went up to the front door and we knocked. We got no answer. I tried the door, but we found it locked. There was no sound from inside the place. The shades were drawn over the windows so that it was impossible for us to see into the house. 
We walked around to the rear and tried the back door. It's locked. Yeah, doesn't look like there's anybody home. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk to that Agers woman again, huh? All right. Doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? From the story she gave us, the kid should be at home. Well, she might be seeing things, Joe. You know, trying to figure out some way to get attention. Yeah, it might be. Didn't seem like that to me, though. Joe? What? What do you got there? The front window. There, you see it? Yeah. There's somebody in there. Come on, let's go. answering. Come on, open up in there. We know you're in there. Come on. Open the door. What do you want? Police officers, let us in. There's nothing wrong. Go away. No, we can't do that. Now, come on, open up. Who are you going to arrest? Nobody. We just want to talk to you. You sure that's all? That's right. What do you want? Are you Pamela Telford? I haven't done anything wrong. Well, we didn't say you did. Then what are you doing around here? What are you looking for? Is your mother in? What? Is your mother home? Well, yeah, she's here. Well, we'd like to see her if it's all right. You can't. You can't see her. Well, I'm afraid we're going to have to. She's lying down asleep. That's why you can't talk to her. Well, what's the matter, little girl? Nothing. Why'd you ask something like that? Don't you think you better let us in? We're going to have to talk to your mother. But she's asleep. She's tired. You can't talk to her. You can't. Ah, oh, come on. You want to go and wake her up? There's some things we've got to talk to her about. I wonder if we could come in. It, it's kind of wet out here. Hmm? How about it? Then you can get your mother and we can have our talk, huh? I guess you can come in. I guess it's all right. Come on in, Joe. Yeah. The front room was about 12 feet square. The only light in the room came from a candle and a jelly glass on a table. The only furniture in the place was the table that held the candle and a torn artificial leather and chrome couch. The floor was covered with paper, rain-soaked cardboard boxes and dirty clothes. At a half a dozen different places, drops of dirty water were seeping through the roof. The water was being caught in empty tin cans that had been placed around the room. To the left was a door to a bedroom. In it, in a wooden crib, were two children. From the descriptions we'd gotten from the Eggers woman, we recognized them as Martin Telford, age four, and his sister Carol, age two. As soon as the children saw Irene and me, they hid their heads under the dirty blanket that covered the crib. There was nothing else in the room except a dirty mattress lying on the floor in one corner. From the appearance of the bedding, it hadn't been laundered or changed in at least three weeks. On the other side of the house, a small kitchen was piled high with dirty dishes, pieces of rotting food and empty tin cans. The plumbing in the house had apparently been out of order for several weeks. While Irene and I looked over the house, the girl who'd met us at the door, Pamela Telford, followed us. When we got back to the front room, she started to cry. <laughs> all right, you want to tell us where she is? Come on, Pamela, it's not as bad as all that, is it? Here, here's a handkerchief. Here you are. Now, where's your mother? She's out looking for a job. It's kind of late for that, isn't it? I don't know. That's what she's doing, though, out looking for a job. Well, now, why'd you tell us that she was here tonight? Because I didn't know what you wanted. I thought you were trying to arrest her. Well, why'd you think that? Because that's what she said. Your mother said that? Yes. She told us that policemen arrested people. She told us about it, how you did it once to her. Your mother's been arrested? Yes. Do you know why? Because she was. 
Well, what for? Do you know? She got sick. She got sick and they put her in jail. Mm -hmm. That's why I told you she was asleep. I thought that you'd go away and leave us alone. It's sure cold in here. Yeah. Do you have any heat in the house, Pamela? There's a heater in the bedroom. Oh, I'll turn it on. Good. It doesn't work. What? The heater doesn't work. Marty was playing one day and he broke the little rods in it. It doesn't work anymore. Well, we should be able to get some heat out of it. No, you won't. There isn't any gas. They turned it off. Mm-hmm. Well, I think maybe you youngsters better come downtown with us, don't you think? Why? Well, it'll be warm down there, a lot more comfortable for you. We can't go. We gotta wait here. That's all right, Pamela. We'll leave word for your mother where you are. Maybe that's your mother now, huh? No, it's Steve. Who are you? He's a policeman. What do you want? There's nothing wrong here. Nothing for you to come buttoning in for. We want to see your mother, son. She hasn't done anything. Why don't your cops leave her alone? All the time you're after, never leave her alone. You're kind of rough for a little guy, aren't you? That's none of your business. I know my rights. I know I'm good. Well, look here, son. We're going to take you downtown and give you a good meal, just until we can talk to your mother, that's all. Then you're going to bring us back? Well, we'll see. How about Marty and Carol? You taking them, too? Yeah. Going to give them something to eat? Yes, that's right. Okay, we'll go with you. Just for tonight, though, that's all. Just for tonight. You understand? Yeah. One another thing. Yes, what's that? We're paying our own way. I've got money. Anything you give us, we're going to pay for. Well, you won't have to do that, son. Well, I'm going to. We don't need charity. We're getting along all right. Everybody has a little rough luck now and then. Everybody. Mom tries. She really does. She's been looking for a job for a long time. Uh-huh. All right, Steve, you want to help get the others ready to leave? I'm not sure we can go. Well, I'm afraid you're going to have to, son. All right, but just for tonight. But the only reason is that I want Marty and Carol and Pamela to have something hot to eat. There's something wrong with the stove so we can't cook on it. That's the only reason we're going. Just because there's something wrong with the stove. The gas is turned off. No, it isn't. It just don't work. But whatever we eat, whatever we get, we're going to pay for it. I've got the money. Well, now, I told you once before that won't be necessary. Well, it is, too. We're not taking any charity. We've never taken any. We're not going to start now, either. Anything that's done for us is going to be paid for. Yeah, I guess that's right, Steve. Huh? It'll be paid for. Dragnet would continue to air new broadcasts on radio until the fall of 1955, and in repeats until February of 1957. While many shows lost sponsorship, Chesterfield continued to sponsor Dragnet until the very end. With good reason. In 1955, Dragnet was the second highest rated radio show on the air. In that same laboratory many months earlier, I conceived and tested the first three-electrode vacuum tube. This grid tube, which is, we had recently christened the Audion, would amplify telephone currents. I remember as if it were yesterday, that summer afternoon in 1907, when music was first sent out by radio phone. In 1907, when the idea of radio broadcasting first occurred, and again in 1910, when the voices of Metropolitan Opera singers Caruso and Martin were for the first time launched upon the ether, and again in 16, when for the first time regular radio concerts were maintained from my old station at High Bridge in the Bronx, 
there continued to dawn a widening vision of the astonishing potentialities of the radio broadcast, which vision the last 19 years have been bringing more and more into reality. But I confess that in those pioneer days, my eager imagination fell far short of picturing the astonishing hold with which this idea so suddenly gripped our entire nation. The voice you're about to hear is William Frugs. Next in radio, I was doing uh, Hallmark Hall of Fame, which was a wonderful experience because the sponsor, J.C. Hall, just said, give me a quality show, Bill, whatever you want to do. And twice a year, Bert Oliver and I of the uh, advertising agency would take the Super Chief to Kansas City and we'd lay out programs we wanted to do. I changed the format of the show to put in current people instead of digging up people from the past. We stopped doing George Washington and Alexander Hamilton at last, and we did stories about Joe DiMaggio and Miller Huggins with Joe DiMaggio narrating, and we did Breaking the Sound Barrier with Chuck Yeager narrating the show. An incident from the life of George Gershwin with Ira Gershwin telling the story, and a story from the life of Damon Runyon with Gene Fowler. And so the ratings shot up. It became the second or third highest rated show in, in radio. Frug spent the early 1950s in charge of the Hallmark Hall of Fame. The show began in the 1940s as Radio Reader's Digest. But again, the investment was very little. I think it cost J.C. Hall probably $1,200 a week for a sponsored network coast-to-coast show with Lionel Barrymore as a host. The February 7, 1954 episode was a profile on Lee DeForest, one of radio broadcasting's pioneers. Remember, a Hallmark card when you care enough to send the very best. Tonight, from Hollywood, the makers of Hallmark cards bring you an unusual true story on the Hallmark Hall of Fame. And here is our distinguished host, Mr. Lionel Barrymore. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Hallmark Hall of Fame, where we offer you true stories about real people. As the sound of my voice reaches you tonight, so do the efforts and heartbreak of a very brave man, Dr. Lee DeForest, the father of radio. His inventive genius in the field of electronics opened for all the world and all the ages the invisible empire of the air we call radio. Here is a remarkable story of one man's victory over complete despair. We'll hear this in just a moment. And you'll meet some very special guests later in the broadcast. Now, here's Frank God. Valentine's Day next week is the day when you express your feelings and your good taste through Valentine's. You can do both if you choose Hallmark Valentine's. You'll find the loving messages you want in the simple, unaffected words you would use. And humorous Valentine's, but designed with the good taste you demand. 
And the hallmark on the back will tell your friends that on Valentine's Day, too, you care enough to send the very best. Lionel Barrymore appears by arrangement with Metro-Golden-Mayer, who celebrates their 30th anniversary at your favorite theater with The Long, Long Trailer, starring Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz. And now Mr. Barrymore brings you tonight's story on the Hallmark Hall of Fame. Last reunion, New Haven, Connecticut, June 1906. Like all reunions, the day has been filled with hilarity, pledges of eternal friendship, banquets, and speeches. Gentlemen, 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 as I recall, this was and still is the hungriest class ever graduated from Yale University. (laughs) Officially, and on behalf of the faculty and trustees, it is my distinct pleasure to extend to all of you a cordial welcome back. Ten years ago at this time, most of you were quivering in anticipation of your final examination. And, and I would guess, I would guess, rather, I am certain that in the ten years you have been away from here, all of you have discovered that life has a way of holding final examinations more frequently than they ever occurred on this campus. On this unserious event of your tenth reunion, I mention this serious aspect of living by way of introducing one of your fellow classmates. Not only do you and I know him, but the world knows him now. His fame is well earned. For he and he alone is responsible for the fact that American wireless telegraphy leads the world. Gentlemen, I give you your comrade and classmate, Lee DeForest. Thank you, sir. I, uh... I, I didn't prepare a speech for tonight. That's all right, Lee. You just tell us how we can become inventors. Yeah. <laughs> tell us how to do it. Well, I'd say you need three things. First, an idea. And secondly, a landlord who isn't too good at accounting. <laughs> and thirdly, and this is the hardest, find a stomach that can go without food. <laughs> and that's about all I have to say. <laughs> Well, that isn't all we have to say, Lee. I think I speak for every man here at this decennial when I say we're very proud of you, Lee. Thank you, sir. Gentlemen, Lee DeForest. What are the shows that you've produced and directed? Hallmark Hall of Fame for two years, Romance for about a year and a half, something called Sunday Playhouse, which was a replacement for Hallmark after J.C. Hall pulled out, I finished that out about six months. I can't think of that. Oh, I, I did an escape. I did just an assortment of, a, I don't know, a couple, I wrote a couple hundred scripts and produced and directed about a hundred shows. I think radio began its decline at the end of World War II with the development of television, probably late 40s, early 50s. Almost 1950 exactly when I would date it from. TV was taking over. 
What happened was just economics, because the management of, of whom I was a part just said, your budget is cut, your budget is cut. Amos and Andy were brought back as disc jockeys. It was just economics. And gradually shows were just left out of the schedule. I think the final thing I realized, I got an offer to go into television. And I didn't want to go into television, but I knew my job was vanishing. But I really knew it was vanishing. After I left and took a job at Screen Gems as a writer-producer, they never replaced me. I was the last vice president of CBS Radio. <laughs> Unfortunately, by March of 1955, fewer and fewer network shows were sponsored. Hallmark canceled the show. This is Americana. During the 1953-54 season, NBC Chicago's WMAQ and the speech department at Northwestern University jointly broadcast a series of radio essays entitled Americana. Each episode explored a facet of American life or history and the characters who made it come alive. The perfidious duty, the traitor and the spy, they are immortal, but not for evil alone. Hosted by Professor Martin Maloney, it followed the previous season's The Meaning of America. The February 13, 1954 episode was called A Study in Villainy. Pure villainy lies forgotten while we mourn a broken sword, tarnished honor, the glory that descended. The words you have just heard were written by James Thomas Flexner in his recent biography, The Traitor and the Spy. This program is Americana. The 21st in a series of radio essays on the American scene, presented each week by Northwestern University in cooperation with station WMAQ. Tonight, we bring you A Study in Villainy. Good evening. I'm Martin Maloney of the School of Speech at Northwestern University. One day, when I have an hour or so free to spend in the library, I hope to run down a quotation I saw recently, attributed, I think, to Charles Mertz. It went something like this. Nothing draws a nation so closely together as its murders. Mertz meant, of course, all those great villainies of which murder is the most commonplace and most meaningful. He meant, too, not the deeds in themselves, but the deeds as they come into public knowledge, as they are reported in newspapers, magazines, books, on radio and television. Now, why so outrageous a statement as this? Nothing draws a nation so closely together as its murders. Mertz explains, as I understand him, that all reports of gross villainy give us a kind of stone against which to test the edge of public morality. I can give you an example of this. Somewhere around a year and a half ago, following approximately upon the Kefover hearings, a book called Mafia was published by a newspaper reporter named Ed Reed. Mafia is an exceedingly sensational account of the operations of the Sicilian Black Hand Society in the United States. The following account of the death of Alfonso Palazzola, one of the original mafiosi, is fairly typical of its content. 
There was a bright morning sun shining at the intersection of 10th and Wash Streets in St. Louis on September 9th, 1927. People strolled along the shade on the east side of 10th. Some entered an Italian statuary concern on the northeast corner, and one or two went into the office of a corn sugar company next door. From a nearby pool room came the click of ivory balls on the table and the sound of laughter. A Chrysler Roadster came to a stop across the street, and a tall, well-dressed, slim man alighted. He wore a white-brimmed white hat, the trademark of the mafiosi. The atmosphere of the area became suddenly tense. Passers-by nudged one another. One said to a child, It is Mr. Alphonse. He wears the white hat. You must bow when you speak to him. The one who wore the white hat crossed Tenth Street and stood in the doorway of the sugar company. He appeared to be waiting for someone. Gradually, his presence ceased to attract attention. Business resumed and laughter was heard. Like a country meadow after a hawk has settled in a nearby tree and appears to be merely resting, not hungry. The click of the balls and the pool tables again became audible. Few noticed a stout, rather short and swarthy man who walked north on 10th from Carr Street. It was Pasquale Santino. Oh, buongiorno, Mr. Alphonse, he said, bowing and smiling. Good morning, Santino, said Alphonse. Say, I, I can't give you fellows that money. I, I can't afford it. <laughs> oh, yes, sir, you can, Alphonse replied easily. No, no, I can't. And, and what's more... I've got friends who will see that I don't have to pay it. We're running this town. You've got to pay, Alphonse declared. All right, said Santino meekly. I'll get the money and I'll, I'll bring it to you tomorrow. Uh, goodbye, Mr. Alphonse. He put a sinister inflection on the mister, but Alphonse didn't notice it. Alphonse was looking north along 10th Street toward the police station less than a block away. Santino was looking south. He saw a lot more than Alphonse. He saw four men run toward them across the street. Three of them jerked automatic pistols from their pockets and the fourth produced a sawed-off shotgun. Santino had lived up to his promise. He had put the finger on Mr. Alphonse. He was less than six feet away from Alphonse when three pistols roared a minor accompaniment to the sawed-off shotgun. Alphonse staggered and was dying as he reached instinctively for his pistol. Then the coup de grace was given by two more assassins who drove up in an automobile and slowly and methodically emptied their pistols out of the car windows at and into Alphonse. Alphonse, the mafioso, sent one bullet zinging aimlessly into the air then rolled over in the gutter, looking up at the alien American sky and lay still. Now, why should such a record of violence and savagery as this be published? Or more to the point, why should it be read by some thousands of citizens who have in their ordinary course of existence no connection at all with murders or with murder, and much less with that highly specialized group of savages who have been members of the Mafia? May we explain this phenomenon in the terms of Charles Mertz and say that we do not know virtue unless we also know the corresponding sin? 
When I had reached this point in my speculations, I happened to think of one of my favorite books, really one of the great literary classics of our time, Rebecca West's Black Lamb and Gray Falcon. In the prologue to her book, Mrs. West tells how she was in the year 1934 recuperating from an operation when she happened to turn on the radio. But one evening, I turned the wrong knob and found music of a kind other than I sought. The music that is above earth, that lives in the thunder clouds and rolls in human ears and sometimes deafens them without betraying the path of its melodic line. I heard the announcer relate how the king of Yugoslavia had been assassinated in the streets of Marseille that morning. We had passed into another phase of the mystery we are enacting here on earth, and I knew that it might be agonizing. The rags and tags of knowledge that we all have about us told me what foreign power had done this thing. It appeared to me inevitable that war must follow, and indeed it must have done, had not the Yugoslavian government exercised an iron control on its population then and thereafter, and abstained from the smallest provocative action against its enemies. So I imagined myself widowed and childless, which was another instance of the archaic outlook of the unconscious. For I knew that in the next war, we women would have scarcely any need to fear bereavement, since air raids, unpreceded by declaration of war, would send us and our loved ones to the next world in the breechless unity of scrambled eggs. That thought did not occur then to me, for I rang for my nurse, and when she came, I cried, Switch on the telephone. I, I must speak to my husband at once. A most terrible thing has happened. The king of Yugoslavia has been assassinated. Oh, dear, she replied. Did you know him? No, I said. Then why, she asked, why do you think it's so terrible? Her question made me remember that the word idiot comes from a Greek root, meaning private person. Idiocy is the female defect. Intent on their private lives, women follow their fate through a darkness deep as that cast by malformed cells in the brain. It is no worse than the male defect, which is lunacy. Men are so obsessed by public affairs that they see the world by moonlight, which shows the outlines of every object, but not the details indicative of their nature. I said, well, you know, assassinations lead to other things. Do they? she asked. Do they not? I said. For when I came back to look on it, my life had been punctuated by the slaughter of royalty by the shouting of newsboys who had run down the streets to tell me that someone had used a lethal weapon to turn over a new leaf in the book of history. Are you new to old-time radio? A hardcore fan? Curious, but don't know where to start? Try the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society, a podcast dedicated to the great horror, crime, and suspense shows from the golden age of radio, including tales from Suspense, Lights Out, Quiet Please, The Shadow, and more. Each episode features a classic or maybe not-so-classic story from the old-time radio vault, complete with historical notes and trivia. At the end of each podcast, your mysterious old hosts, Tim, Joshua, and Eric, discuss the merits of the story and decide whether or not it stands the test of time, balancing insight and humor to make you think harder about what made these old shows so great, even when they aren't so great. The Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society is available everywhere you get your podcasts, as long as you get your podcast from iTunes or Podbean. For more information about the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society, or to download episodes directly, visit ghoulishdelights.com. And now back to Breaking Walls. Look out! 
Jack Benny's show was really quite easy to do. I'm talking now from the actor's standpoint. Obviously, the writing was meticulous. Jack honed a lot of that writing. He sat with the writers a great deal. Mm -hmm. He, uh, If it came down to a rock-bottom decision as to a joke in or out, it would be very often Jack's decision that made uh -huh. that happen. But for an actor, it was a very simple show to do. You'd go in, we'll say on Saturday, you'd read through once. Just sit down, read the script straight through, get up and leave, and you'd come back in on Sunday. You'd read once around the table, go and read it once on the mic, and that's all until showtime. Just that easy to do. So the whole it, uh, thing was really right in there with the writing. It well, was it was that, that and also <laughs> that Jack knew his people, and they wrote for those people. Mm -hmm. Jack had a great thing that I don't think any other comic in the business had. If you were to pick up a Jack Benny script and read it, you'd say, well, wait a minute, where, where are Mr. Benny's jokes? Because Jack didn't do jokes. He did looks. He did takes. He fed, really, you, the actor around him. That's mm -hmm. the way he conducted his show. The big jokes were in the hands of the people who surrounded him, which was most unusual. And it showed that he had tremendous confidence in himself. He surrounded himself with characters that people expected to hear also. When yeah. As soon as he said, oh, mister, people said, oh, boy, here it comes. He's going to get it, you know? <laughs> yeah. And if he said excuse me, and the fellow said, see? He says, oh boy, here it comes. Yeah, now they're yeah. going to do that routine. The people were in on it, and I think they enjoyed being in on it. I guess the fact that the show stayed on top all the years that it did proved that. The Jack Benny Program, transcribed and presented by Lucky Strike. Lucky's taste better. Cleaner, fresher, smoother. Lucky's taste better. Cleaner, fresher, smoother. For Lucky Strike means fine tobacco, richer tasting. In February of 1954, Jack Benny was in the midst of his sixth season on CBS and his 22nd in radio. Although his TV program was in the midst of its fourth season, his radio show was still airing in the familiar Sunday 7 p.m. Eastern time slot. It had a radio rating of 8.2, second highest on the air. Smoking enjoyment is all a matter of taste. To many, he was simply the most famous comedian alive. Cleaner, February 14, 1954, was Jack Benny's real-life 60th birthday. Of course, he was a man who'd been claiming to be 39 for years. The Lucky Strike program, starring Jack Benny with Mary Livingston, Rochester, Dennis Day, Bob Crosby, and yours truly, Don Wilson. Ladies and gentlemen, today, February 14th, is Valentine's Day. It's also the birthday of the star of our show. So here he is, our own little Valentine, Jack Benny. Thank you, thank you. Hello again, this is Jack Benny talking. And Don, that was very nice of you to remember my birthday. How did you ever think of it? Well, Jack, a strange thing happened last night. I ate at that Chinese restaurant you recommended. Uh-huh. And I broke open one of those rice fortune cakes. Uh-huh. And a little paper said, "'Tis better to give than to receive, and Sunday is Jack Benny's birthday." <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, what did you uh, bring me for a present, Don? Well, it was too late to go shopping, so I brought you a pocket full of fried rice. 
<laughs> Too late to go shopping. I told you to have lunch there, not dinner. Anyway, Don, I'll take the rice. There's a friend of mine getting married Wednesday. Jack, you can't throw this rice. It's fried. So's my friend. It's Remley. <laughs> Anyway, Don, thanks very much. Well, anyway, Jack, getting back to your birthday, tell me, how does it feel being a year older? Don, I don't know. It seems strange to advance another year. But then on the other hand, there's something exciting about reaching 40. Yes, sir. Jack, you may be 40, but I must say you look much younger. Well, Don, it's nice of you to say that, but let's face it. My age is beginning to show. A little wrinkle here, a gray hair there. Eh. <laughs> Time marches on. Now, let's get on with the program. Oh, oh, wait a minute, Jack. Before we get into the show, I have a little surprise for you. A surprise, Don? Yeah, the whole audience is going to join in. All right, everybody. Happy birthday to you. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks, everybody. Thanks very much. Wasn't that nice, Jack? Yes, very nice, Don. But, uh, but... Uh, but what? Well, I was watching one fellow sitting in the front row, and he didn't sing at all. As a matter of fact, he had a frown on his face. And I'm just curious to know why. Oh, mister. Mister. Me? <laughs> yeah, would you mind coming up here on the stage for a minute? Okay. Now, look, uh, Mr., uh, Mr. Fink. <laughs> F-I-N-Q-U-E, Fink. <laughs> oh. oh, well, Mr. Fink, I'm just curious to know, you were the only one who didn't sing happy birthday to me. Why was that? So you sang to me on my birthday? <laughs> No, no, but then how can I? I don't even know when your birthday is. It's December the 24th, and all you hear people singing is Jingle Bells, Jingle Bells, Jingle All. Not one word about Frank. <laughs> well, that's too bad. Now, look, uh, Mr. Fink. F-I-N-Q-U-E. <laughs> I, I know, I know. Uh, that's French. <laughs> yes, yes. In Paris, it's Fink <laughs> Well, you certainly are. <laughs> and I don't care what it is. All I want to know is if you've got this chip on your shoulder, why did you come in here in the first place? Who wanted to come in? I was standing in line for the Amos and Andy show. <laughs> and some guy come over and he told me they was giving away refrigerators in here. <laughs> Giving away refrigerators? In radio or programs, you either got to give you entertainment or a refrigerator. Now, where's my icebox? <laughs> You're not getting an icebox, so go sit down. Okay, okay. Twelve programs this week. I still ain't got a stick of furniture. <laughs> Keep quiet, please. 
Mr. Fink. <laughs> now, Don, regardless of what just happened, I... Oh, hello, Dennis. You're just in time for your song. Oh, I'd have been here sooner, but on the way down, I had to stop off at our family doctor's office and punch him in the nose. You punched your doctor in the nose? He had it coming. My mother told me what he did. What? Well, when I was born, for no reason at all, he slapped me. <laughs> Dennis. And my back was turned, too. <laughs> Dennis, never mind that silly talk. Let's have your song. Okay, Mr. Benny, but first, uh, congratulations on your birthday. Oh, well, it's awfully sweet of you to remember it, kid. I never would have thought of it if you hadn't given me that ticket to the burlesque show last night. Uh, never mind, Dennis. What'd the burlesque show have to do with it? Well, a girl came out to do a dance, her bubble broke, and a sign fell out saying, Sunday is Jack Benny's birthday. <laughs> Dennis. You must be popular. What applause you got. <laughs> all right, all right. They whistled and everything. <laughs> Dennis, what a fuss over a man's birthday. Look, Dennis, you found out it was my birthday. That's all that matters. Now, come on, let's have your song. Okay. Gee, when I'm 40, I hope I don't look like him. <laughs> what did you say? Sing, Dennis. You said it. <laughs> I remember one script where I went over to Jack Benny's house and I sang the song, which I usually had to do every week, sing the song I was going to sing on the following Sunday's program. And I went over there and I sang the song, and after I had sung it, Jack says, Dennis, that'll be fine. And I said, well, thank you, Mr. Benny, and i got to go now. And he showed me to the door, and as I was about to leave, I turned and I said, goodbye, Mr. Benny, and have a nice trip. I left, of course. He went upstairs, and he was halfway through packing before he realized he wasn't going anywhere. <laughs> you know, these are the silly type of things. There was another one I remember where, in the body of the show, I had done something very frightening to Jack because he had another singer on the program, and I was very jealous, and I was mad. So what I was doing, I was hiding in the bushes in his home at Beverly Hills, and I was throwing rocks with notes attached through the window. And he would read them, you know, and I'd say, you are next, and this type of thing. You think you can get away with it, but you can't. And all of this, well, sure enough, I was caught by the police in Beverly Hills. At the end of the show, in the tag, he calls everybody out, and he called me out for a bow, and he said to me, Dennis, what you did to me, in the show tonight, frightening me the way you did, gave me an eerie feeling. And when I heard that, I said, what did you say, Mr. Benny? He says, what you did to me gave me an eerie feeling. And I said, gee, Mr. Benny, that's where I was born. He said, oh, Erie, Pennsylvania? I said, no, feeling West Virginia. <laughs> now, that's a lousy joke, but I could get away with it. That's not really a bad Characters joke. Characters that I play. It's not that bad a joke, actually. Yeah. Matt, 
That was Secret, Secret Love, sung by Dennis Day. Very good, Dennis. That was wonderful. Congratulations on your birthday. Dennis, you congratulated me already. Forget it. I tried, but I can't get that bubble dancer out of my mind. <laughs> Force yourself. Well, you know, Mr. Benny, it must be nice to have your birthday uh, come on Valentine's Day. Yes, kid, but there's only one thing against it. Yeah? I mean, so many famous people were born in the month of February. Longfellow, Lincoln, Washington. It, it makes it hard for me to be outstanding. I can imagine. Of course, I, I don't want you to think for a minute that I'm comparing myself to a man like Washington. Why not? He wore a wig, too. <laughs> very clever. Very clever. Did you make up that joke yourself, Dennis? Uh-huh. And you like that type of joke? Yeah. I thought it was very funny. Oh, you did? <laughs> you thought it was funny, huh? Well, excuse me a minute. Hello? Kenny Baker? <laughs> Come home, all is forgiven. <laughs> you better watch it, Dennis. Another gag like that, and you'll only have one show. And another thing. Say, Jack. Yes, Bob? Well, look, I didn't want to interrupt anything, but I've got a little present for you from the boys in the band. Oh, well, this is really too much. To think that the boys in your orchestra would remember my birthday. I mean, with all their other worries and, and responsibilities. Well, Remley was the one. Oh, Remley, huh? Uh-huh. Funny thing happened. Last night, Frankie was in a bar, and he happened to look up, and he saw a little sign that said, Tomorrow is Jack Benny's birthday. Bob, that was written on the ceiling? No, under the table. <laughs> I put it there on purpose. I knew he'd see it. <laughs> Anyway, Jack, all the boys chipped in, and they appointed Bagby, the piano player, to go out and buy you a plaque, and they asked me to present it to you. So, Jack, on behalf of the boys in the orchestra, here you are. Well, that's very nice of them. Gee, it's a fancy plaque, too. Let me read the inscription. To Herman Heffelfinger, <laughs> champion bowler, anthracite miners tournament. Bob, what's the matter with Bagby? I mean, why would he get me a plaque like that? Well, you don't have much choice when you deal with a second story, man. <laughs> Wait, you mean Charlie buys stolen merchandise? Well, sometimes he buys, sometimes he sells. <laughs> I, I, I can't understand Bagby. There are so many decent, honest businessmen around. Why does Charlie have to buy from a burglar? He gives green stamps. <laughs> Well, Bob, I'm not accepting a hot plaque. Happy birthday, Mr. Benny. Huh? That bubble dancer's driving me nuts. Dennis, go sit down. Now, let's get on with the program. Oh, say, Jack, before you go any further, I think it's time for a song by the quartet. Oh, yes, that's right. Are the sportsmen here? Yeah. Come on in, fellas. Uh, Jack, the boys want to dedicate this number to you on the happy occasion of your birthday... Because this song's been associated with you for years. Well, that's very nice, Don. And, Jack, there's a part in it where you play the violin right at the opening. Oh, Don, do I have to? No. <laughs> well, I'm going to. It's my birthday. 
Now, wait till I get the music stand up here. Say, Bob, can I get a violin from one of the boys in the band? Well, I don't know about a violin, but Bagby will make you a good deal on a hot Cadillac. <laughs> I don't want that. I want a violin. Larry, let me have your violin, will you? Thanks. Hmm. What a gang in the orchestra. When they say that Remley is playing a steel guitar, you can take that word either way. <laughs> Where's that violin? All right, Don, I'm ready. You want me to take the opening, huh? insisted on the comedy commercial right from the beginning. Right and from the very first show. When you had the sportsmen on the, yeah. was it the Lucky Strike well, program where they jelly, came in? That was Jell-O, Lucky Strike, right. everything, right. yeah. Well, you wrote most of those, didn't you? Or have a with big my writers, with my writers, yeah, sure. We wrote every one of them. When we started for Jell-O, the Jell-O commercials saved Jell-O because Jell-O was going out of business almost on account of Knox Gelatin was beating Jell-O, beating the hell out. And so they wanted the comedy commercials, figuring that that could be the one thing that would save it. And by golly, it did. We were out for General Foods and Jell-O for 10 years, uh -huh. and Lucky Strike came after then. Lucky Strike sponsored Jack and the Benny Show for 15 years. They were the greatest longevity of any client on the show. General Foods being 10 years for Jell-O, mm -hmm. 15 years for Lucky Strike. It's amazing. You think back, Jack <clears throat> Benny had as his sponsor Jell-O for 10 years and uh, Lucky Strike for 15 years. And today, now here in the 1980s, you're lucky if you get a sponsor to pick up a 30-second commercial during a television special. That's right. No longevity at all. My, how times have changed. Yeah, really have. But you see, the sponsors took pride in the programming in those days. Now... There was always the hue and cry. I'll editorialize for a second here. Good. Always the hue and cry that once they got the network programming out of the hands of the sponsors, the audiences would have better programming. And eventually, through the 50s and the 60s, the programming moved away from the sponsors who really produced the shows through their advertising agency, or most of them. You got it. To the point where now... The networks are producing the shows or paying for the shows to be produced, and the sponsors really don't have any interest in it other than the sheer numbers they're getting out, out right. there. Whereas in the old days, and you were there with the Jell-O and with the Lucky Strike thing, I believe that the audience, in their response to the sponsor, fortified the sponsor and kept his interest in presenting that program. I think your analysis is very well taken. I don't think anybody can dispute it. We all agree it's smooth and so pleasant like. Oh, yes, the one smoke for me is Lucky Strike. That was... That was really swell, boys. Thanks very much. You know, Don, it was so nice of the quartet. Come in. Telegram for Jack Benny. Oh, here I am, boy. Yeah. I hear, boy. Boy, here's a tip for you. Oh, boy, a dollar. 
A whole dollar. Thanks, Mr. Benny. I wonder who could be sending me a telegram right in the middle. Come in. Uh, excuse me, Mr. Benny. What do you want now? I forgot my bicycle. You didn't forget it. I bought it. <laughs> Goodbye. I hate when a guy makes a deal and then tries to get out of it. <laughs> Gee, the, the telegram's from my sister, Florence. Oh, what does she say? She says, Dear Jack, I've been listening to your program and I thought I should send you this wire immediately. You're not 40 years old today. You're actually... Oh, no. No, this can't be. This is awful. Well, Jack, how old does your sister say you are today? 39. <laughs> oh, my goodness, this is embarrassing. But my sister Florence ought to know. I guess instead of being born in 1914, it was 1915. I'm going to call Rochester and have him look at my birth certificate. My sister Florence says I'm 39, and I think I'm 40. I gotta find out. Say, Mabel. <laughs> what is it, Gertrude? Mr. Benny's line is flashing. Yeah. I wonder what Kalia's cover girl wants now. <laughs> I'll plug in and find out. Yes, Mr. Benny. I'll call your house immediately. He wants I should get him Rochester. Well, be nice to him. You know, today's his birthday. It is? How did you find out? Dial Ulrich 8900. <laughs> yeah, but how did dial, you... Dial, dial. Okay. The time is 4.21 and 10 seconds. And today is Jack Benny's birthday. <laughs> the time is 4.21 and 20 seconds. His shirt size is 15 and a half. <laughs> the time is... How do you like that? Imagine Benny having his birthday announced on the telephone. How does he get away with it? He used to be a personal friend of Alexander Graham Bell. <laughs> See? But with all the advertising, he must be getting a lot of gifts. I can imagine. What did you send him? A beautiful calfskin glove. One glove? Why in the world would you give him only one glove? That's all he needs. He never takes his right hand out of his pocket. <laughs> Very true. Say, Gertrude, can you give me a lift home tonight? I guess so. What's wrong? I got another flat tire. Say, you've been having more trouble with that motorcycle. <laughs> yeah. Operator. Operator. Gertrude, get me my home. I'm trying. I'm trying. You know, Rome wasn't built in a day. Well, you ought to know. You helped build it. <laughs> 
Never mind, now please ring my home Okay, okay, I'm ringing it hmm. Smart Alec Gertrude She takes you out for dinner once, she thinks she owns you <laughs> Oh well Mr. Benny's residence, star stage, radio, television, and silent pictures Rochester, it's me what took you so long to answer the phone? Well, today's your birthday, and I was out in the kitchen finishing your cake. Oh, you baked the cake for me? Yeah, and you ought to see it, boss. Across the top in whipped cream, I wrote, Happy Birthday. Oh, that's nice, Rochester. Uh, uh, by the way, how many peas in happy? <laughs> Two. Uh-oh. Oh, so you'll have to add one. I gotta take one off. I got three. <laughs> Well, look, you can do that later. Now, Rochester, here's why I called you. I don't know what to do. I thought today was my 40th birthday, but I just got a wire from my sister, and she says I'm 39. Well, don't argue with her, boss. Grab it. <laughs> Rochester, I got to be honest with myself. Now, I want you to look at my birth certificate and tell me the date on it. Your birth certificate? Yes, do you know where it is? It's right here on the desk. What's my birth certificate doing on the desk? You got it out the other day when you applied for your old age pension. <laughs> oh, I just did that for a gag. Well, it must be laughing your first check came today. <laughs> Rochester, stop making things up. Now look at my birth certificate. I'm looking at it. Now, in the space where it says date of birth, what's there? A hole! <laughs> A hole in the paper? Yeah, we erased it once too often! <laughs> oh, well, then there's nothing I can do, and I'll have to take my sister's word for it. I guess so, boss. Your sister must be right. Yep, I guess I'm 39. Well, goodbye, Rochester. Goodbye. Oh, say, boss. <laughs> what? Aren't we devils? <laughs> you and me? No, me and your sister. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Goodbye, Rochester. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm not the only one who's celebrating a birthday. Last week, more than 3,300,000 scouts and leaders of the Boy Scouts of America had a candle lighting job on their hands. It was the beginning of Boy Scout week, and these scouts added the 44th candle to their birthday cake. Candles that, through the years, have lighted boyhood's path to manhood, brightening the way with fun and fellowship, guiding boys to a future of good citizenship. And ladies and gentlemen, today's scouts are tomorrow's citizens. Thank you.
Nearly every good comedian has good timing. They, they couldn't be good without it. Burns has great timing. Ed Wynn had the greatest. Gracie Allen had probably the greatest. She was the great of all time when it came to timing. You have to have real good timing or you can't exist as a comedian. You see, in radio, you could visualize everything yourself. Like my vault scenes were easier to do on radio than in television. Now, the reason my character sustained so many years, like you say, how could things go on and on? I played a character that included all the faults and the frailties of mankind. See, every family had somebody like me. Either they had an uncle who was stingy, or one who thought he was very sexy and he wasn't. So every family has that kind of a person. The different characterizations, you know, we made Phil Harris a sort of a smart-alecky guy. He either left a pool room or a bar or a girl. Come on, Don. The car's right around the corner. I'll drive you home. Okay. You know, Don, that was a pretty good program we just did, but hey, I Benny, think... Hey, Benny! Huh? Oh, it's you, Mr. Fink. Yeah. Hey, don't you know some program I can go on and win a refrigerator? No, I don't. Come on, Don. Well, I'm going to get a refrigerator even if I have to buy one. Well, I don't care. Buy one? <laughs> get in the car, Mr. Fink. Good night, folks. <laughs> Programs written by Sam Perrin, Bill Josephsburg, George Balzer, John Packerberry, Al Gordon, Al Goldman, and produced and transcribed by Hilliard Marks. The Jack Benny program is brought to you by Lucky Strike, product of the American Tobacco Company, America's leading manufacturer of cigarettes. <laughs> escape into a different world. It's a podcast frozen in time and space where anything can happen. Be intrigued. I'm ready to confess to the crime of murder. Be in suspense. What is that sound? Be entertained. Go ahead, suck on that straw, you. Be moved to tears. No! Be transported back in time. Terror on the air. Tune in on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, keep your volume turned up for terror.
It was tremendous in radio. You had, there was one operator who had a chain of supermarkets, Johnson up in Syracuse, and he boycotted the products of General Foods or Nestle's. If they used people that were blacklisted, and the blacklisting was in the hands of, a, I don't want to go into it because it's way, way far back, but John Henry Falk sued this Johnson man. Neiser, one of the great attorneys of our lives, was the attorney, and they won. The book was written about it and all, but unfortunately, poor Hen John Henry Falk never received a penny because this Johnson guy was bankrupt. It was um, a strange time that had no rhyme or reason to it, but Roy Cohn is the backbone, mm. and he was McCarthy's ears and eyes and helped him carry out all of this evil. But when you think of the wonderful people, Welsh, the lawyer from Boston, and mm -hmm. Edward Murrow, thank God that we live, I hope, in an age now where all of that is just history. But it was, it was not just th films. No, the Hollywood 10 came long before McCarthy. Mm -hmm. McCarthy hitched onto that in order to make himself that much more important. But the Hollywood 10 was uh, very, very special. And, uh, well, there's a man who still I visit with occasionally and still writes. He just did a book, a very successful book, Howard Fast. He went to jail because he wouldn't say who he worked with or who he went with and so on. It's, so radio was definitely affected. Uh, oh, yeah. sure. Oh, you, very you, much so. Very much so. Oh, the sponsors. I, mean, I talked about <laughs> Everett Sloan. Um, once you got yourself into the red channels, uh, or they named you, you lost your livelihood. Yeah, I guess radio, because it is sponsored, you have brand names and things. That's right. In the movies. There was no television yet in 51, 52, 53, or very little. There was television, but very little. And their livelihoods really still depended on radio and, of course, films and things of that kind. But bad times. The United States Treasury Department presents Guest Star with Paul Weston and his orchestra, yours truly, Del Sherbet, and starring Rosemary Clooney. How do you do, ladies and gentlemen? This is Del Sherbet, your host for Guest Star, a transcribed feature for savings bonds presented as a contribution of this station in the public interest. United States savings bonds now pay 3% interest compounded semi-annually when held to maturity. For safety, convenience, and a liberal return, invest more in savings bonds. And now our star, that talented miss of recording and pictures and radio fame, Rosemary Clooney, opening the show with Winter Wonderland. February of 1954, Wisconsin Senator Joseph McCarthy was touring the circuit, giving speeches entitled 20 Years of Treason. He claimed that President Eisenhower didn't want a whitewashed government, and the Democratic label was stitched with the idiocy of Truman, rotted with the deceit of Atchison, and corrupted by a red slime of white. Is the bluebird here to stay? Is a new bird? Indiana Senator William Jenner claimed Democrats tried to lose the Korean War. The president's assistant, Sherman Adams, charged the Dems 
with being political sadists. Democrats, cried Fowl. The Republican Eisenhower asked for conflict resolution. On February 10th, as he authorized $385 million over the $400 million already budgeted for military aid, the president warned against his country's intervention in Vietnam. When asked if he would change tactics, Senator McCarthy said the price is too high. He'd smeared homosexuals as subversives, liberals as anti-American, and moderates as weak-minded saps. McCarthy's downfall had ultimately already begun. In 1953, his committee started investigating the U.S. Army for supposed communist infiltration. On February 18th, two generals refused to obey their summons to appear before McCarthy's committee. They stayed away on order of Robert T. Stevens, Secretary of the Army. Undaunted, McCarthy accused the Army of rampant communism, but this time, when asked to back up his claims, he had very little to reveal. This stunt bolstered President Eisenhower and both Republicans and Democrats who were growing weary of McCarthy's tirade. The public, too, was getting sick of him. This turning point was strengthened when the Army revealed that McCarthy had asked favored treatment for a former aide who'd been drafted. In December, the Senate would finally censure him, an option exercised only three other times in the Senate's history. He never recovered and died in 1957 at the age of 48. This will be covered in much more detail during the next two episodes of Breaking Walls. In the meadow we can build a snowman And pretend that he's a circus clown We'll have lots of fun with Mr. Snowman Until the other kitties knock him down When it snows, ain't it thrilling Though you From the college campuses of Smith College in Northampton, Massachusetts, and Washington and Lee University in Lexington, Virginia, the National Broadcasting Company presents the College Quiz Bowl. Tonight, transcribed, Smith College defends its Quiz Bowl title against the challenging varsity scholars of Washington and Lee University. And here in Radio City, New York, is your master of the quiz, Alan Lutton. Originating as a USO activity created by Canadian Don Reed for World War II soldiers, the College Quiz Bowl was developed into a radio show by Reed and John Moses. It debuted on NBC in the fall of 1953. Two teams of all-American varsity students from different universities competed for prizes and recognition. On Sunday, February 21, 1954, at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, the ladies of Smith College defended their title against the men of Washington and Lee University. Henry Turner, Bethesda, Maryland. Fred Lachman, Lexington, Virginia. Harold Quinn, Freeport, Louisiana. Okay, that's the Washington and Lee team. Now, let's look in on the current champs up in Northampton, Massachusetts. Standing by to serve as Smith's referee again tonight is Jim Strong of station WTIC in Hartford, Connecticut. 
Are the champs ready to go, Jim? They sure are, Alan. And they've got a large group of young ladies here to cheer them on. Here are the team members to say hello. Anne Murphy, Cambridge, Massachusetts. Sydney Howard, New York City. Wendy McEnany, Princeton, New Jersey. Linda Wofsey, Stamford, Connecticut. You've met both teams. Now, before Dick Dudley explains our college quiz bowl rules, may I point out that we recognize full well here in the college quiz bowl that in putting the emphasis on a quick recall of specific facts, we are pointing up only one of the objectives of college education. And we are likewise trying to give you an opportunity to meet a few of the many remarkable, well-rounded personalities to be found on every American campus. Okay, now, Dick, how about those rules? Right, Alan, here they are. Now, Alan Ludden asks a toss-up question worth ten points. And the first team to signal it knows the answer gets a chance to answer it. Now, when Smith College signals, you'll hear. And when Washington and Lee University signals, you'll hear. By means of a special electronic selector, the team which signals first, even by a split second, activates its light here in New York City and makes it impossible for the other team's light to flash. If a team gives a wrong answer to the toss-up question, the other team is given a chance to answer it. And whichever team gives the right answer gets a bonus question worth a stated number of points. The team with the most points at the end of the game is the winner and returns next week to defend its title in the College Quiz Bowl. Thank you, Dick. Now remember, teams, you may interrupt the toss-up question before I've finished asking it, but if you do... And if your answer is wrong, your team will be penalized five points, and I will repeat the question, giving the other team a free crack at it. Okay, those are the rules, and there's the opening whistle, so let's go. The toss-up question that's coming up now, if you get it right, could earn for you a chance at a 40-point bonus. Here is the first toss-up. In 1924, a man named Mallory and a man named Irvine literally disappeared into Smith, Washington and Lee, I mean. Bobby Paxton. They attempted to climb Mount Everest and were lost. Right. That is the answer <laughs> for 10 points. You interrupted a question that I had not completed, and you got the right answer before you heard the question, which was to be, they literally disappeared into thin air. We're going to give you 10 points if you can state more exactly the geographic location of their disappearance. And in telling us, Mount Everest, you got the 10-point toss-up question and a chance at a 40-point bonus, Washington and Lee. So here you go. Now, this question is particularly apt in view of the fact that you were competing tonight against the ladies of Smith College. You know, ever since Eve ate the apple and Pandora opened the box, the ladies have been getting in and out of a lot of trouble. We're going to give you ten points now. Each time you can give us the full names of the following ladies. In 44 B.C., this lady had a bad dream and tried to keep her husband home from the office with a slight cold. We've got the answer on that. Uh, okay, who is it? Harold Quinn, Alan. Harold? That was Calpurnia, the wife of Julius Caesar. That's right, for ten points. Can you tell us what her dream was? What did she dream? No, I'm not quite sure, Alan. She... She had dreamed about the Ides of March, right. Okay. <laughs> you got the right name, and that was the question. All right, now, in that was worth ten points in this 40-point bonus question. In 1431 A.D., this famous lady had a lot of trouble because the Burgundians were mean enough to sell her to the English. Who was she for 10 points? Uh, Fred Lackman. Was that Joan of Arc? That was Joan of Arc for 10 points. All right. 
1793, this lady completely lost her head. Who was she? We've got the answer from Henry Turner. Uh, Marie Antoinette. Right, for 10 points. In 1934, this Canadian lady had trouble, but it all turned out to be a multiple blessing in the end. Who was she? <laughs> We've got the answer from Harold Quinn. Mrs. Beyond. Right, for 10 points. Okay. Here we go now back to a toss-up question. Listen carefully. A cathedral in Gloucester, England, was built over a period of many years. In the nave of the cathedral, some of the arches are rounded and some pointed. For 10 points, which arches were built first? Washington and Lee. Bobby Paxton. The rounded arches were built first. Why? You're right. For 10 points. Romanesque architecture. Right. For 10 points, Romanesque architecture preceded the Gothic arches with the points. Okay, for 10 points now, Washington and Lee, you've won a chance at a 25-point bonus. Anybody in the Washington and Lee team can tell me this. You know, the expression, God save the king, originated in the Bible. 25 points if you can tell us the king to whom this blessing was first applied. Any... Just a moment, we're having a little conference. Huh? All right. Confer and come up with an answer. You ready, fellas? Time is coming. Time, hurry up. All right, we've got it. Harold Quinn. Was it King David? Oh, I'm sorry, it was King Samuel. The first book of Samuel, chapter 10, verse 24, and all the people shouted and said, God save the king. All right, here we go back now. Oh, but before we do, before we go back to another toss-up question, let's find out first what are the stakes in this quiz game. Dick, that's your job. All right, each week, NBC will award to the school of the winning team a $500 gift to be administered by the college. It may go to a scholarship fund or to a campus activity. And each member of the losing team will receive an attractive, dependable Whitner wristwatch. A distinguished member of the Longines Whitner family of fine watches since 1866, makers of watches of the highest character. Well, those are the stakes. And now, with exactly 20 minutes to go, the score, Smith, zero. Washington and Lee, 60. And now we'll go back to a toss-up question, Alan. All right, coming up is a 30-point musical bonus, so on your toes with this toss-up. You'll get 10 points if you can tell us who is Rise and Shine. Smith. Anne Murphy. He's the cocker spaniel who won best in show at the Westminster Kennel Club show. Right, for ten points. Okay, here you go, Smith College, with a 30-point musical bonus. You're going to hear three classical selections, and each with a title that refers to a specific country. In the title of each, you will have a reference to a specific country. You'll get ten points each time you can name the country. Okay, Smith, here's the first. Sydney Howard. All right. I'm sorry, you missed it. It's Spain. That's the Symphony Espanol by Lalo. All right. What country is mentioned in the title of this composition? at Smith going to tell me? That's Mexico. El Salon, Mexico by Aaron Copeland. All right. Smith, here we go. You can still make ten points on this if you'll tell us the country mentioned in the title of this composition.
Washington and Lee would win this evening and defend their title for five consecutive weeks until losing to Syracuse on March 28th. The College Quiz Bowl moved to CBS TV in 1955. In 1963, it moved to NBC, where it remained on the air until 1970. Various non-televised versions of this competition continued to air into the 21st century. In November of 2020, NBC announced a revival of the show. It premiered on June 22, 2021. ...who named the seventh and eighth months of the year after themselves. Washington and Lee. Fred Lackman. Julius Caesar and Augustus Caesar. Right, for ten points. They, of course, named July and August, respectively, after themselves. All right, now, Washington Lee, you've got a chance at a 30-point bonus. The news recently seemed to have seems to have abounded with big business deals. Now, for ten points each, anybody on the Washington and Lee team can tell me what each of the following men did to make headlines in the world of finance and business. First of all, for 10 points, what did Howard Hughes do recently? We've got the answer from Harold Quinn. He offered to buy up all the RKO stock at $6 a share. Right, for 10 points. Now, what did Mr. Robert Ralph Young do? We've got the answer again from Harold Quinn. He's uh, lobbying to become chairman of the board of the New York Central Railroad. Right, for 10 points. What did Mr. Clark Gable do? The training area in, in those days of radio, because you had the opportunity of doing as many shows as we did, that itself was a training, and that goes back when you'd start doing 40, 45 shows a week. Mm -hmm. And actually, I remember one show called 7 O'Clock Final, and they would be writing the show while you were on the air, and the scripts would be coming in page by page. You play this, you play this German character, Spanish, French. I mean, I just, and you do it, and you did it, and it was great training. It was great training. Of course it was. You know, you were just expected to do dialects. Yeah. Nobody asked you if you could. They just no, gave it to you and said, do it. Let me go. Let me go, you fool. Mr. North. Let him go, man. I know where your wife is, Mr. North. Where? What part of the ship? She isn't on the ship. I saw her being dragged under the dock, out into the water. Mr. and Mrs. North. Starring Richard Denning and Barbara Britton. Listen as Pam and Jerry solve the mystery, Winter Honeymoon. When Mr. and Mrs. North took to the air on Tuesday, February 23rd at 8.30 p.m. for CBS, it had radio's sixth highest overall rating. With a 6.1, it topped Dragnet, which aired in direct competition on NBC. Jerry and Pam North were average people who managed to solve murders. Jerry, played by Richard Denning, was a book publisher. Pam, played by Barbara Britton, was a housewife who loved cats, liked to play Cupid, and somehow found her way to a killer's identity. Neither was trained in any science of deduction. They were just intelligent, with a highly communicative marriage. What did you expect? Pleasant smile, a goodbye kiss, and a few kind words. The February 23rd episode was called Winter Honeymoon. You've never gone to the trouble of finding out what I'm like. There's no one, believe me. Walt, who's the girl? Well, if you insist on knowing, I'm going back to Judy. Why? Why? She's my wife, isn't she? You must have a much better reason than that. And she'd have to have an awfully good reason for taking you back. She'll take me back, all right. <laughs> the infallible harm and charm, hmm? 
Well, it'll never work with me again. And I've got a pretty good idea that it won't work with her. You seem to know a great deal about Judy. Oh, don't worry. She doesn't know about me. I've been very discreet. Not one of your precious friends dreams that anyone by the name of Aline Sheridan even exists. And you can be certain it's going to stay that way. Don't shout at me, Walt Harmon. I'm not one of the jailbirds you defend. I'm through with the jailbirds, honey, just as surely as I'm through with you. I'm stepping upstairs. No more petty crooks or cheap racketeers. No more ambulance chasing. The next time I break into print, it'll be on the society page. Judge and Mrs. Walter Harmon were weekend guests at the estate of the Honorable Maxwell Cushing. Oh, so you finally did manage to scrape an acquaintance with Cushing. Some very fancy scraping, Aline. He happens to be the one who was giving me the appointment. But much as the old boy sold on me, he dropped me like a hot potato if even a hint of scandal came out about me. I know the type. It'll be much more than a hint, Walt. I can promise you that. If you think I'm going to let you walk casually out of here after... You're not going to make any trouble for me. Walt. Walt, put down that poker. I try to be decent with you, but you didn't want it that way. Walt! No one will ever connect me with you, Aline. We've never been seen in public together. No one's ever seen me come in here. Both of us have been discreet, haven't we, darling? Walt, in the name of heaven! I've worked too hard for this appointment to have a blackmailing little champ cheat me out of it! Walt! Walt! I don't know, Walt. You're being more thoughtful and attentive than you've been in years, but... Well, there's something I... I don't know. Well, maybe I'm trying to rush things. Four days is as much of a trial, is it, Judy? But <laughs> I got a hunch that when we land in Trinidad tomorrow, the romance of the place will get you. Walt, what are all those people doing at our table? Oh, there aren't really too many. Just the Norths, a nice young couple we met the first night out, and Miss Reimer, who happened to be sitting near me on the deck when I invited well, them. Oh, here they are uh, now. Hi, Judy. Hi. Walt. Hi, everybody. I'm glad you finally got here, Judy. I've had a terrible time keeping Jerry from opening the champagne without you. Champagne? The captain sent it over. He isn't lucky enough to have a honeymoon couple aboard every trip. Oh, well, I'm afraid you're making Oh, I better sit over here, Judy, darling. Might be a little drafty over there. Oh, thank you, Walt. Oh, what's the matter, Judy? You look sort of dazed, huh? Don't start picking on it, Jerry. You know what a tropical moon does to a bride. Oh, how should I? With us, it was the Hoboken Ferry, and it was raining. Always quibbling. Oh, quick, everyone. Turn around. Pretend you don't notice him. Huh? Notice who? That horrible little worm of a cruise director. He's heading this way. Every time he comes near me, I simply shudder. He's positively ghoulish. Well... Everyone having a good time? Just wonderful, Mr. Meeker. Oh, everything's fine. Oh, sorry we're crowding here a bit, or we'd ask you to join us. Oh, I wouldn't dream of intruding. I just wanted to let you know there's dancing going on in the main salon. Thank you, Mr. Meeker. Uh, Mrs. Harmon, I was wondering if you'd do me the honor of dancing with me. Why, thank you very much, Mr. Meekin, but I'm... I'm terribly tired. I was just about to... You don't have to make up excuses. If you don't care to dance with me, it's perfectly all right. Good night, everyone. Oh, I'm Wow. Uh, pardon me a second, will you, folks? Mr. Meekin? Mr. Meekin? Yes, Mr. Meekin. Maybe, uh, maybe it's none of my business, but uh, you sort of jumped to a wrong conclusion just now. Did I? 
You see, I asked Judy Harmon to dance a second before you came up, and she turned me down, too. Maybe, well, maybe we both forgot for a moment that she's on her honeymoon. That wasn't why she refused to dance with me, Mr. North. She doesn't like me. People never like me. They smile and pretend to be friendly sometimes. Oh, but we like you very much. You just imagine that people don't like it's you. It's not imagination. I've heard them talk. They think I'm small and insignificant, that I'm not suited to my job. They whisper about me behind my back. Well, no one better say it to my face. If anyone does, I'll, I'll kill them. Oh, Mr. Me... Who's your first patient, Dr. North? Oh, Pam, I didn't hear you come out. How come you left the party? It left me. Judy decided to go to bed, and Walt wouldn't let her take the long, dangerous trip all the way to their stateroom alone, so the festivities came to an abrupt halt. Oh, what a terrible waste of champagne. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess we might just as well head for our cabin. <laughs> What? I was just thinking of the call I got from Bill Wagon just before we left. You know, the, the poor guy was really jealous of us taking this holiday. You never did tell me why he didn't get down to the ship to see us off. No, he was on a case. A beautiful blonde, a woman named uh, Aline Sheridan, I think he said, uh, was found beaten to death with a poker. I didn't see anything about it in the newspapers. Well, her body was found just before we sailed. Oh, let's not talk about it. Jerry, did you notice anything strange about him? Bill? No. Megan? I was talking about Walt Harmon. Harmon? Oh, now what's strange about him? Well, he just doesn't seem to act like a newlywed to me. Are you kidding? He's the most attentive bridegroom I've ever seen, outside the movies. Well, that's just it. When a man makes such a public display of his affections as Walt Harmon does, it's obvious that he must be trying to hide something. Mr. and Mrs. North were there until April 18th, 1955. Oh, it's you, Mrs. Harmon. Oh, yes, Mr. Meekin. I wondered who could have wandered up here at this hour. Passengers aren't supposed to be up on this deck at all. I'm sorry, I'll go below. No? Now, Meet the Press, the prize-winning program produced by Lawrence Spivak. Ready for this spontaneous conference are four of America's top reporters. Please remember their questions do not necessarily reflect their point of view. It's their way of getting a story for you. Here now is the moderator of Meet the Press, Mr. Ned Brooks. Welcome once again to Meet the Press. Nearly two months have now passed since the salt polio vaccine was pronounced a success. The inoculation program got off to a rapid start but it soon found itself bogged down in a series of difficulties. The climax came about two and a half weeks ago when the distribution of the vaccine was suspended and a re-examination of the testing standards were ordered. We've now been assured that the program is getting back on the track. During 1952 and 53, the U.S. experienced an outbreak of roughly 95,000 polio cases with a death count of over 4,600. Millions of dollars were invested in finding a vaccine. The first effective polio vaccine was developed in 1952 by Jonas Salk and a team at the University of Pittsburgh. On March 26, 1953, Salk went on CBS radio to report the first round of successful tests. Beginning on February 23, 1954, the vaccine was tested at Arsenal Elementary School and the Watson Home for Children in Pittsburgh. Now, Dr. Sheely, if you're ready, we'll start the questions with Mrs. Carpenter. As the mother of two children in the most susceptible age group, Dr. Sheely, 
I'm primarily interested in one thing, the safety of the Salk vaccine. And during this re-examination period, I wonder if anything has come up which makes you question the safety of the vaccine. No, Mrs. Carpenter, we still think the Salk vaccine can be made as a safe vaccine. Our new standards are going to make it, if anything, just a little safer than it was. Then in the future, no American mother need worry about having her child inoculated. No, I think not. I think this vaccine is as safe as man and the tests available to us can make it. Mr. Spivak. Uh, Dr. Cheeley, do you know now that it's safe as a result of the new tests that you have made? Yes, the new standards uh, should assure that the tissue culture tests will give us a degree of accuracy that should, ass should assure that the vaccine will be safe. Well, now, Dr. Uh, Sheely, those standards haven't yet been tested on any large number of children. They're still pretty theoretical, aren't they? Jonas Edward well, Salk was born on October 28, uh, 1914, in New York City. The eldest son to Russian Jewish immigrants. He earned a medical degree from NYU's School of Medicine in 1939 and became a doctor at Mount Sinai Hospital. In 1942, he went to the University of Michigan to develop a flu vaccine. He soon became assistant professor of epidemiology. Five years later, he was appointed director of the Virus Research Laboratory at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine. His main mission? Develop a polio vaccine. That you're not just as wrong again as you were then. You're still operating in the laboratory. You haven't yet tried these, these new serums on children, have you? Salk believed his vaccine, composed of killed polio virus, could immunize without the risk of infecting the patient. He gave the vaccine to volunteers who'd not had polio. All developed polio antibodies, but experienced no reaction to the vaccine. I believe that Dr. Salk and the other men who have served us as, who are serving us as consultants, understand these problems well enough to be able to give us good advice. In 1954, national testing began on one million children. But in April of 1955, soon after mass vaccination began, some patients contracted the disease after being vaccinated. These vaccines were manufactured by the Cutter Pharmaceutical Company. In response, the Surgeon General yanked all the vaccines made by this company from the market. Soon, the Wyeth polio vaccine was also reporting to paralyze and kill several children. It was discovered that some vaccines made by these two companies had not been properly inactivated, allowing live polio virus into more than 100,000 doses. Reviewing the materials and uh, giving us advice on what we should do. The next month, the National Institute of Health and Public Health Services established a technical committee to review all polio vaccines. The problem was quickly remedied. They may, if they wish to, go out and visit plants. On the other hand, we hope to have uh, a number of men who will be visiting plants uh, rather frequently in the future who will be reporting their findings to them from time to time. Now, are these uh, experts also going to try to find out what happened to the a vaccine that went bad, the lots that uh, were manufactured out in California? Yes, we have been discussing our findings in that situation as we have them to date, and we will be discussing the total of our findings uh, with them prior to making our report. Now, have they found any live virus in any of the vaccine that was given to date? In the two years yes, before the vaccine, uh, the average number of polio cases in the U.S. was more than 45,000. By 1962, that number had dropped to 910. We're still studying that. Is it possible for a live virus to be transmitted by air? Jonas Salk purposely uh, never patented yes, the vaccine possible, or earned any money from his discovery. Plant, and with proper techniques, it shouldn't be so transmitted. Did this plant have proper techniques? Uh, until we have our full report, Mr. Blair, I, 
I can't uh, give you fragments from it. Uh, I'm still awaiting the full report from the National Mary, no! God, let go! I simply don't understand it. Of course, the sound is coming from the basement. It's all right, I've got you, Mr. Adam. No, no. Show me what? Gotta get away from those eyes! Get away! Get away! George, no! Are you attracted to the dark? Fascinated by the dramatic? With a side of gruesome and a dash of poetic justice? If your happy place is a gloomy room at midnight, then you should be listening to the podcast 12 Chimes It's Midnight. Please join us, won't you, for plays of mystery, horror, and suspense. Find us and subscribe wherever you procure your podcasts. And remember, at midnight, anything can happen. Carnation Evaporated Milk presents a star, Barry Sullivan, on Stars Over Hollywood. To me, being out of work and broke was unbelievable, but it happened. And the piece of paper I picked up off the sidewalk that night was just as unbelievable. Did you ever find a hundred-dollar bill? From Hollywood, California, where the world's favorite stars live and work, the world's favorite evaporated milk brings you transcribed stars over Hollywood. Each week, Carnation presents another famous name for motion pictures, television, and radio. Such distinguished performers as Jane Wyman, Lionel Barrymore, Audrey Totter. Today's star, Barry Sullivan, may currently be seen in the Lindsley Parsons production, Loophole. Today's story, The Hundred Dollar Bill, is brought to you from Hollywood by Carnation. The milk from contented cows. Stars Over Hollywood broke one of radio's strongest prejudices. That Saturday daytime was a programming wasteland. When Paul Pierce, CBS production superintendent on the West Coast, announced plans to launch a star-packed dramatic series on Saturday mornings, few observers gave it a chance. Getting movie stars to cooperate at 9.30 a.m. would be impossible, and no one would listen anyway. Concentrated to more than double richness. The stories were generally light comedies. The set was loose and informal. The dress code casual. Occasionally the stars even arrived in bathrobes and pajamas. Ivan Dittmar's musical director used three instruments, the organ, the harp, and the violin, and sounded more like a small combo than a one-man show. Stars Over Hollywood ran for 13 years in the same time slot, with only two changes in sponsor. This season had a rating of 5.5, first overall for daytime weekend programs. On February 27, 1954, Barry Sullivan guest starred in The Hundred Dollar Bill. Barry Sullivan in the role of Bob Randall. Curtain going up. Have you ever been fired? Fired from a job you thought would last as long as you wanted it to last? 
I thought my job with Acme Chemical was like that, too. Yeah, but I'm getting ahead of my story. My name is Bob Randall. I live in the little suburban town of Winston. My wife, Julie, and I have a comfortable seven-room house surrounded by a white picket fence. There's a nice green lawn in front and a large backyard. Friendly neighbors, a good life. Not exciting, maybe, but a good life. I'd usually get home every afternoon a little after five. Hi, Larkinvar. I'm spraying the roses you promised to spray last Sunday, remember? Wrong number, Guinevere. This is the horseradish man. I also have a nice line of fish glue, sand and gravel, calf's foot jelly, and... I just say you've got a nice line, period. How are you, darling? Hmm. <laughs> How's everything, Julie? Mm, fine. You look tired. Hard day today? Oh, medium rare, which brings up an interesting and moody question. What's for dinner? I'm starved. Everything you dislike the most. French onion soup, spaghetti with meatballs, mm. and English muffins. Ah, a typical American dinner. <laughs> hey, shall I put the car away? No, leave it out, dear. We might take in a movie after a while. Good. I understand there's a brand new picture at the Bijou starring Theda Barra and Ben Turpin. Well, it was like that. Laughter, understanding, love, a happy life. And then, as the expression goes, the blow fell. Ray Dawson, the vice president in charge of production, called me into his office. He told me that Acme was selling out to Standard Chemical, and of course, they'd be bringing in their own people. Although Dawson tried to make it easy, it was like a stiff, unexpected punch in the stomach knocked the wind out of me. We parted with the usual cliches used under the circumstances. I cleaned out my desk and went home. That you, Bob? Yeah, Julie. How come no beep to dee dee beep beep today? Uh, I'm not exactly in the mood. What'd you say, dear? I couldn't hear you. Come on out in the kitchen. I'm putting the finishing touches on a chicken pie. Well, don't you have a kiss for the little woman who bears your name? Of course. <laughs> What's the matter, Bob? Aren't you feeling well? I'm all right. Well, you're certainly not yourself. What's the trouble, dear? And Julia, I may as well let you have it. Brace yourself. I got fired today. Fired? Yeah. But you've been with Acme Chemical for eight years. Yes, Dawson mentioned that while he was giving me the sack. Oh, he was considerate and really very nice, but it still remains I got bounced, fired. But why? I know you've done a good, conscientious job. Everyone likes you at the plant, and the way you Dawson work... Dawson mentioned all those things, too. It's no fault of mine, and it isn't the fault of the firm, either. Acme sold out to Standard, and that's that. If it's any consolation, I wasn't the only one that got canned. There were ten others. Oh, darling, don't you think you're taking this a bit too seriously? After all, you're a rather bright child. You mm. shouldn't have too much trouble getting another job. I don't know, Julie, let's face it. Universities all over the country are turning out hundreds of industrial chemists. And don't forget, I've been specializing on one product for the past eight years. That's not good, baby. Oh, don't be silly. You're tired right now. You'll feel better after dinner. Uh, guess you're right. We'll talk it over after dinner. After all, it's not the end of the world. We talked it over many dinners after that. I did everything I could to get work. Every morning I went into town, and every night I came home with the same report. No job. Oh, there were a number of leads, and some of them promising, and lots of promises that led nowhere. Went on for weeks and weeks. By this time, my severance pay was gone, and we began to dig into our savings. Got a cup of coffee, dear? Uh, yes, please. Now, Julie, Julie, I've been thinking. Here I've been breaking my neck trying to get work as an industrial chemist. But there are other jobs I could get. Mm, I saw an ad in the paper last week. The circus is looking for a man who's willing to be shot out of a cannon twice a day. No, I'm serious. Perhaps I could get a job as a salesman. Oh, Bob, you're not cut out to be a salesman. Ooh. Look, darling, you're an industrial chemist and a darn good one. I know it's been discouraging, but you'll find something. You just have to have patience. 
patience. My patience is wearing pretty thin, Julie, and so is our bank balance. Mm, don't worry, darling. We'll, we'll muddle through somehow. Julie, darling, you're swell, but I'm worried, and I know you are, too. I'm not. Bob, you're actually getting panicky, and, and that's bad, darling. Don't you realize that? I realize that we're in a jam. We have payments to make on the house, the car, the freezer. My insurance is due on the 18th, and there's the... Listen, dear, I've written a few letters, made some personal calls, and done a bit of phoning. Uh, what do you mean? Well, I saw Mr. Sutliff at the bank and explained the situation, and he was very, very cooperative. Until we get back on our feet, he'll be satisfied if we just pay the interest on our loan. Really? And I was able to get extensions on our payments for the freezer and the car. And Gus at the service station told me not to worry about gas and oil. Oh, honey, everyone was so understanding and, and seemed to feel a personal concern. They all... Well, of course, they know we're not deadbeats. Well, so now you don't have any real pressure on you, and you can just stop worrying so much, right? Julie... Julie, I don't know what to say, except I think you're wonderful. But the pressure was on just the same. You know, being out of work for a long period of time had always been one of those remote, unbelievable things that might happen to someone else, but not to me. But it was happening. Meeting neighbors and friends, it wasn't easy. I was wearing a fixed smile most of the time and making with wisecracks about being a gentleman of leisure. It was pretty corny, not very convincing. Then one day I ran into Dr. Crawford coming out of the bank. Well, Bob, how are you? Hola, Doc. Haven't seen you in a long time. <laughs> That's right. Congratulations, my boy. Uh, congratulations? Well, the great news, isn't it? I know how long you and Julie have been wanting a baby. Uh, a baby? Now, son, you don't have a thing to worry about. Julie is in excellent condition. She shouldn't a... have a bit of trouble. Ah, there's my wife. My impatient wife, I should say. I'll be seeing you, Bob. Now, congratulations again and good luck. Yeah, yeah. Uh, thanks, Doc. My first experience was with in high school answering roll calls for missing classmates, and then they discovered that, and then I got blamed for everything. <laughs> and then, uh, of course, I got Charlie in my senior year in high school, and I wouldn't have graduated from high school without Charlie, so I owe him a great deal. Well, he helped you in all the exams, huh? <laughs> yes. Well, no, I, my history teacher told me not to plan on graduating because I was so bad in medieval and modern history. Well, I was already booked for a show that summer, so I couldn't wait to get going. So a diploma wasn't very important. But then I went on a student recital after I got Charlie in about March, and I heckled all the teachers, you know. And my history teacher, her name was Miss Angel. Chai says, so I got Miss Angel for history. He says, don't let the name fool you. She grows horns at examination time. <laughs> then we picked on the principal, too, and so she kept me after class the next day and said, she didn't know I had this talent, and the world needs laughter more than it needs another history teacher. She would help me graduate, so <clears throat> I copied him from a little Irish newsboy in front of the high school building, and he was a real mick, you know, cocky little funny, and I was a kid with him, and so uh, I guess they are Irishmen that look like him, but Mortimer Snurd, I have people say they know somebody who sounds and looks like Mortimer Snurd, so <laughs> that's not quite as good a compliment, I think. Well, were you the first of the big-time ventriloquist in Vaudeville at that particular time, Edgar? Well, no. We never had more than four or five ventriloquists in the country, even in Vaudeville days. I just happened to get on radio and be at the right place at the right time. Wanalyn <laughs> Plus brings you the Edgar Bergen Show with Charlie McCarthy. 
Cliff, you say, help me, I'll mow you down. It's Sunday night, and time again for Edgar Bergen with Charlie McCarthy, Mortimer Snurd, and Ray Noble and his orchestra, brought to you, transcribed, by the makers of famous Lanolin Plus products. For softer, more youthful-looking skin, and lovelier, more manageable hair. Tonight, our guest is June Allison. Airing on CBS since 1949, Edgar Bergen's 1954 Sunday at 9.30 p.m. Eastern rating was 4.7, 12th overall. Promises you radiant, younger-looking skin and softer, shining hair. His show was sponsored by Lanolin Plus. On February 28th, the celebrity guests were the husband-wife duo, June Allison and Dick Powell. Such a tiny price. Only a dollar and tax at all cosmetic counters. And now, here is Edgar Bergen with Charlie McCarthy. Oh, yes, indeed. Thank you, thank you. Yes, girls, it's everything you could ask for. Charlie McCarthy. <laughs> yeah. Charlie, there's something I would like to ask you. Well, go right ahead, Bergen. I'd rather you learn it from me than... Have you hear it in some tavern? All right. <laughs> this is the time of the year when good little boys and girls get promoted and go on to the next grade. I know, Bergen. They went that away. I <laughs> How did you do in your final exam? Well, I didn't even place a show. I see. <laughs> to tell the truth, I wasn't even in the running. I was scratched. I see. <laughs> so you didn't pass, I take it. No, I didn't pass, and you can have it. Yeah. <laughs> what was your grade on your final exam? Yeah. What was my grade? Yeah. What I wouldn't give for a golf score that low. Yeah. <laughs> well, you should have studied more. When I was a boy. Ah, that's going back now, Buster. Yeah. <laughs> when I was a boy, before an exam. I burned the midnight oil. Yeah, maybe it would have done you a little more good if you'd rubbed it on your head. <laughs> <laughs> or better yet, some lanolin plus. Yes, all right. I suppose you're failing your exams means that, once again, you're still in the eighth grade. Ah, yes, yes, Bergen. It's time to sew another service stripe on my sleeve. I... <laughs> my goodness, Charlie. How long have you been in the eighth grade? Well, I don't know. But I do know I'm the only kid in the school that gets invited to the PTA meetings. I <laughs> well, tell me, what did you flunk in? French, algebra, chemistry, English, history? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, oh, no. Oh, yeah. The only thing I passed in was flunking. I see. <laughs> I thought you were good in history. What happened? Were the questions hard? No, but the answers were. Yeah, I <laughs> Well, what were some of the questions they asked you? Well, the first question was, uh, how much did we pay for Alaska? Well, what did you put down? Well, I put down, what difference does it make? The deal's already gone through escrow. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, haven't you learned anything? Well, I don't know. What caused the Boston Tea Party? Well, they heard about the price of coffee. No, no. <laughs> 
I say, Edgar, if you're having a tea party, may I draw up a bag and slosh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was just questioning Charlie in history. Oh, in history. Yeah. Jolly good sport, yes. I'm simply wizard at that subject, you know. For instance, do you know what uh, George II was responsible for? Uh, no, Ray, what was George II responsible for? George III, old oh. boy. <laughs> was an historical wizard, you know. Well, yeah. Let's see how much you really know about history, Ray. Uh -huh. What happened in 1812? Well, I don't know, old boy. Uh -huh. The hotel detective wouldn't let me peek through the keyhole. <laughs> no. no, I mean the year, the year. Oh, the yeah. year, yes. I'll, I'll give you a hint. Uh, there was a war in 1812. Oh. What was it called? It was called the War of 1812. Well, that's rather a good name for it, isn't I it? <laughs> I mean, it's nothing very fancy, but it seems to put the point across. You know? <laughs> well, I must be leaving now. I've got to visit June Allison again. Such a crashing bore. Yeah. Wait a minute. Visiting June Allison is a bore? Oh, yes, Charles. You know, in person, she's not pretty at all. Oh, oh she was wearing slacks and an old sweatshirt. And when she shook my hand, I could see how muscular she was. Ray, that was Dick Powell you shook hands with. <laughs> really? You know, I was wondering why she asked me if I'd like to go to the steam bath this afternoon. Yeah. <laughs> well, tally-ho, chaps. Yeah, tally-ho. Now, Charlie, to get back to your disgraceful failures. Later, Bergen, I gotta finish this thing I'm working on. Yeah. I see father's name, Edgar Bergen. His date of birth. Yeah. Well, what do you know? We're back to 1812 again. <laughs> <laughs> Heartburn of my heart <laughs> That there's my melody <laughs> Hoody, hoody, ho All right, all right, Martimer Yeah Tell me, is there anything new on the farm? Uh, yeah, yeah We got a new garbage pail I see <laughs> One of them polite kind What do you mean, polite? Well, when I step on the little pedal, it tips its hat to me Oh, I see <laughs> <laughs> I see Look, Mr. Bergen, I was, uh, I was uh, lucky on the way over here. I found a brand new pencil. You found a pencil? Yeah, yeah. Well, what are you going to do with it? Well, it's too nice to just go to waste. Yes, of course. So I think I'll write a book with it. Write a book? Yeah. Mm -hmm. They say any idiot can write a book. Yeah. <laughs> and if that's all it takes, I'm their boy. Yeah. <laughs> are you going to write fiction or nonfiction? Well, maybe not at first, but... Uh, I'll work around to it later. Uh, what was that? I don't know. It missed me. I, uh... <laughs> could you repeat it? I don't think I could. No, no. I... They say to be a great writer, you must have suffered. Uh, would you say that you have qualified? I would, yes. When it's going to rain, I got a corn. It hurts like crazy. <laughs> Anyway, your book, uh, uh, you're going to write, uh, yeah. <laughs> there should be room for two of us up here, shouldn't there? <laughs> you're going to write a book. Yeah, good for you, yeah. <laughs> now, 
How about the story of your life? Yeah, how about that? Yeah. <laughs> Where do you think it ought to start? Well, I think it ought to start when I was born, when you were born. I didn't amount to anything before that. I... <laughs> were you born in a hospital? Uh, no, no. We was poor folks. Uh, I was just homemade, homemade. I just... <laughs> What did your father say when he got his first look at you? Oh, no! <laughs> well, now, that's not possible. That's the second thing he said. Oh. <laughs> well, what kind of a baby were you? Uh, a boy, I think, a boy. <laughs> you were an only child? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was a very small litter. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, do you recall uh, much of your early days? Yeah. Uh, my mother and father, they, they were sick most of the time. I see. Yeah. What were they sick of? Uh, me. me In the fall, Bergen's show would go back to 60 Minutes. He'd air for two more seasons before wrapping up his radio run on July 1st, 1956. Bergen did little TV. He was a radio man even though his art was primarily visual. With Charlie and Mortimer, he emceed the 1956 CBS audience show, Do You Trust Your Wife? And he made numerous guest appearances on TV variety shows of the 1950s. He later appeared in films such as The Finks, Wonton Ton, The Dog Who Saved Hollywood, and The Muppet Movie. Is your mother living yet? No, 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 not yet, not yet. I... <laughs> Mortimer, you seem to be getting dumber every day. Tell me, why is it? Well, I'll tell you, when they was passing out dumbness, they throw the book at me. I... Say, Charlie, I understand you have a bit of advice for the lovelorn tonight. How about yes. telling the girls about it? All right, Bill, gladly. Tell your pa and tell your ma. And tell your kith and kin that here's a brand new product that does wonders for my skin. <laughs> Charlie, any product that can do wonders for your skin is pretty contagious. Well, that brings February to a close. But for many of these topics, we've only just begun. We will not walk in fear one of another. We will not be driven by fear into an age of unreason if we dig deep in our history and our doctrine. And remember that we are not descended from fearful men, not from men who feared to write, to speak, to associate, and to defend causes that were for the moment unpopular. The actions of the junior senator from Wisconsin have caused alarm and dismay amongst our allies abroad and given considerable comfort to our enemies. And whose fault is that? Not really his. He didn't create this situation of fear. He merely exploited it, and rather successfully. Cassius was right. The fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars, but in ourselves. Good night, and good luck. Next time on Breaking Walls, it's March of 1954, and Senator Joseph McCarthy's four-year anti-communist tirade begins to come to a head. 
The reading material used in today's episode was On the Air by John Dunning, Network Radio Ratings by Jim Ramsberg, as well as articles from Broadcasting Magazine and Life Magazine. On the interview front, Jack Benny, Frank Nelson, and Don Wilson spoke to Chuck Shaden. Hear their full chats at speakingofradio.com. Jack Benny also spoke for great radio comedians in 1972. Harry Bartell, Hyman Brown, Lillian Byeth, Bill Frug, Virginia Gregg, Lou Krugman, and Peggy Weber were with Spurvac. For more info, go to spurvac.com. Hans Conried and Edgar Bergen spoke with Dick Bertell and Ed Corcoran for WTIC's The Golden Age of Radio. Hear these full interviews at goldenage-wtic.org. Dennis Day spoke with John Dunning for his 71 KNUS program from Denver. And Lee DeForest spoke at the 1939 World's Fair in New York. Selected music featured in today's episode was Shaboom by The Crew Cuts and Serious Serenade by Duke Ellington. Special thank you to Ted Davenport, Jerry Hendigas, and Gordon Skeen. For Ted, go to radiomemories.com. For Jerry, visit otrsite.com. And for Gordon, please go to pastdaily.com. I'd also like to thank Walden Hughes and John and Larry Gassman of Spurback. Listen to their shows on the Yesterday USA Radio Network. Breaking Walls, episode 125, will pick up our miniseries in March of 1954. This episode will be available beginning March 1st, 2022, everywhere you get your podcasts and at thewallbreakers.com. In the meantime, give Breaking Walls a quick rating on whatever platform you listen, especially iTunes. You can also join the Breaking Walls Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash thewallbreakers. And support this show for as little as a buck a month at patreon.com slash thewallbreakers. So until March 1st, my name is James Scully, This has been Breaking Walls, episode 124, and I'll catch you on the flip side. Thank you very much.